Many of you have um, stood on the Mount of Olives with my wife and I overlooking the uh, skyline of Jerusalem and have descended down the Palm Sunday road to the Jezreel Valley uh, only to rise up again and uh, meet, go into Jerusalem. The same path that Jesus himself took uh, on a donkey, prophetically announced in the Old Testament, as his triumphal entry into Jerusalem the last week of his life. Uh, a king riding on a donkey was an indication of peace. A king riding on a horse was an indication of war. So I want to go through this scenario, but not so much the details of the scenario as much as what it meant. What did it mean to these people? Were they aware? And even more important, what is the application of this event to your life, your household, your family, your marriage, your community, your church, our nation? What is the application of the triumphal entry? To make a point along those lines, I am going to touch on what for some of you will be a potentially very controversial subject. Not that uh, I'm looking for controversy, hardly the case. But I just felt led that this particular subject at this particular time is the best way to demonstrate and provoke thought on a subject that is a foundational part of being a disciple of Christ. What I'm going to share with you today is, let me say it again, it's a foundational part of growing in Christ as a disciple. Unfortunately, it has not become a firm foundation for many people. So the example that I use, while potentially controversial, has its purpose, and the purpose is for you to think about in a bigger way, beyond the controversy that I bring up, if this principle is at work in your life. Because if it's not, you've missed a very serious, important, foundational brick in the wall of your faith. Okay? Plus, I feel led to do it, even more important. Okay. So look at this uh, passage. This is what they're singing as he enters into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. They're reading Psalm 118 and singing it. And he has made his light shine on us with boughs or palm branches in hand. Join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Some translation will say to grab the horns of the altar. That's interesting. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. As they're singing this, they're laying their clothing on the ground, and the donkey is walking over the clothing, and they're singing, they're worshiping, they're praising God, and they're declaring his kingship, his lordship. And uh, that's how he entered the last week of his life. Fantastic. Now, also... Pointing to this particular passage, I think, is something that comes out of what we call the Songs of the Servant. The Songs of the Servant are writings in the book of Isaiah, which is one of the major prophets. 
because it's a major body of work. And in the songs of the servant, like uh, Isaiah 53, 61, 50, 42, there are uh, prophetic uh, descriptions of Jesus, his, his birth, his life, his ministry, and his death and resurrection. And in Isaiah 50, verse 7, we read this. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Okay. The title of this message is Providentially. Everything that's happening that we're reading about has providentially come to pass. Providentially has about two main definitions. It's a very important word. Providentially. Providentially means that um, God has protected and cared for over time by his power um, someone or some purpose. He's protected it from being uh, thwarted, stopped, reversed. Uh, so I would say that God has providentially protected the messianic prophecies of Christ, starting with Genesis 3.15, to, have, to come to pass, to keep them from being broken, to bring them to fulfillment. Now, when God gives a messianic prophecy, it's just not as easy as you might think. God has to tell us what's going to happen. He has to allow free will within and in and around that happening to orchestrate and conduct the affairs of men so that the prophecy comes to pass in this broken and fallen world where men have free will. Said another way, Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem, Micah tells us, but we got to have to we got to have a census taken. We got people have to take the census. The word has to get out to take the census. The word has to be received to take the census. And, and Joseph and Mary have to get to Bethlehem. All of that conducting of, of free will and people and orchestrating scenarios is all interwoven into, yeah, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. It's just not that easy. Yeah, so you see, Jesus is going to flee to Egypt after, as a baby with his family after Herod tries killing all the young children in Bethlehem. Well, all of that is orchestrated and prophesied. So God has providentially brought to pass what he promised about 200 times regarding the, the birth, life, ministry, and death, resurrection of Christ. It is the single most mathematical and probable thing you can actually try to figure on earth. Providentially, he protected that process and the sequence and interplane of those prophecies with one another in time and space through 45 different authors over 1,500 years for his glory. That's blow your mind if you really thought about it. Second thing about providence is it is a timely preparation for future eventualities. If you want to know the veracity of Jesus Christ and whether he historically lived, that's, that's an easy one. But it is the prophecies over time, thousands of years, that, that we get to, into this thing about, man, that's no joke. The providence of God. 
Okay, well, he set his face like flint, Isaiah says. He was providentially destined to be there throughout antiquity. We know that. Almost all the Messianic prophecies are being fulfilled up until this point. He only has a few more to go because he's only got a week to live. And then there are those others in the second coming. There's cooperation and collaboration with, between the Father and the Spirit to bring these about. There's divine timing, sovereignty, oversight, orchestration of human affairs. But here's the thing. His face is like flint towards Jerusalem. Let me say it again. His face is like flint towards Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means his face is resolute. It means he is determined. It means it's the only thing that matters. It means that's the focal point of his life is his death. It means he's not going to be sidetracked. It means that prophetically he is where he's supposed to be when he's supposed to be there approaching what it is he's supposed to be approaching, the cross. But also, not just sovereignly and providentially will he hang on that cross, he must willingly accept the cross in Gethsemane as, as the Father's will. Flint is a hard gray rock, real hard. Uh, they used it over years to fashion into weapons like arrowheads and things of that nature because it's um, very strong, very strong rock. Um, when met with steel, it will spark. Um, Flint is even used in modern-day cigarette lighters. I hope you don't know anything about that. Um, put it this way, there's a resoluteness and a determination on God's part represented by the flint and his face towards Jerusalem that eventually would spark a revival. That's the best way I could put it. No one has been more determined to fulfill something than Christ. No one has been call, called to fulfill something as horrific as that which Christ accepted on our behalf, the oneness with our sin. The Father provided the providence, and Jesus responded with determination, focus, resolution, and willingness. Philippians 2 and 8 puts us this way. He, this way, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. All right? So let's name some of these kind of um, eventualities. Um, from the Father's perspective, uh, he's already determined in Genesis 3 and 15 that he's going to put hostility between Satan and the seed of the woman, capital S. He's already decided early on in Genesis that the seed of the woman is going to crush the skull of Satan. Only his heel would be bruised. Strangely enough, Jesus is crucified at Golgotha, which means place of the skull. We already know that Jesus is going to be part of a covenant. He's going to be sacrificial. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to be spit upon, mocked, disfigured. All the things that we see, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, he's going to be a Galilean, um, on and on and on, already decided. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with this idea 
that Jesus Christ is prophetically fulfilling the law on our behalf. And he's starting to demonstrate this. The only response these people have to his triumphal entry is, is that he is of greatness. Um, of great greatness. The exaltation and the magnification of Christ for those who saw him for who he said he was and the Father said he was and for whom it was written he was through the Old Testament saw nothing but greatness. After all, he was entering their city and meeting the greatest need that they have solving the biggest problem they had whether they realized it or not. They may have thought their biggest problem was Rome, but their biggest problem was sin. You may think you have huge problems, but your biggest problem is sin. Once sin is forgiven, once sin is atoned for, once sin is paid for, your greatest problem has been taken care of, and that's the definition of greatness. Someone has given themselves up on your behalf to meet the greatest need that you had, a need you couldn't meet on your own, I would call that greatness. I don't know of anything greater. Uh, we were in a, I was teaching a class this week in, uh, on healing, and someone in the class had mentioned previously that uh, uh, they had never seen a miracle, and they were... Um, waiting uh, to be convinced, really, either by a miracle or a, or, or a moment in time, when an aha moment when they see Christ, you know, as the Lord. I get that. Jesus even said, you people won't even believe unless you see miracles. In other words, there was this kind of expectation, think about this now, you may have done this before, you have a condition that you're placing on God. I'll believe if you do this, he does this, he does a miracle, I have this aha moment, whatever the case may be. I liken that to a modern-day version of marrying for money. I'm going to marry you. I'm going to say that I love you, but I'm really marrying you for your money. You see, we don't come to Christ that way. We come to Christ for what he's already done for us, not what we perceive he's going to do for us in a relationship with him. You see the difference? Like he's sufficient where he is right now for what he's done on your behalf. That's enough to worship him from all eternity. If you want to put a cherry on top and some whipped cream and some other things, fine, go ahead. Let him do that. But what he's done on your behalf and mine is plenty, believe me. All right. So, Christ is coming to meet their greatest need. Not their greatest want, necessarily, but their greatest need. So I find myself intrigued by this word, greatness. What do we see as greatness? Um, I'm on YouTube often watching videos of various things. I guess it's in a way, in a way it's where I get my news because I don't have to watch an hour-long program. I can just watch a three-minute. I can watch, usually I watch four three minutes from four different perspectives, and then I put it together. It's kind of like the Gospels to me. So <clears throat> they have this thing in the athletic realm 
of YouTube videos. Who's the GOAT? G-O-A-T. What does that mean? Greatest of all time. So some people, I don't know how they have time to do this, but they don't have anything better to do than put together videos to argue who's the greatest of all time. Tiger Woods or Jack Nicklaus? Michael Jordan or Larry Bird? I, I guess there's some intrigue to it, and I guess it's amusing on some level, but I just don't have the time. So who's the greatest of all time? I don't know. I don't think that's a question you're ever really going to answer when it comes to a human greatness, okay? There were great people that lived throughout history. There were great Christians. There were the people who did great things, you know? I, I think our country's greatest moment, what would, what would you think? Think to yourself, what's our country's greatest moment? I think, I'll tell you one that would probably be up there is the moment that the American infantry walked up to Dachau or Auschwitz and liberated uh, the Holocaust prisoners. I can't even fathom what that was like, besides shocking. That was a great moment. There are great moments, I, I tell you some other things that are great sometimes I think. Thank God I live in a country where another country can have a terrible catastrophe and we can drop ship supplies in there. I love that. I love seeing the airport that some country filled up to people who are totally devastated and somewhere on there it says USA. I feel good about that. That's, that to me is great. It's far greater to give that aid than have to receive it, right? That's greatness. I like that. There are other kinds of greatness. Um, scientific discovery can be a form of greatness. Advances in medicine can be a form of greatness. Um, technological innovation. The marketplace can be an example to the world when it's working the way we want it to. It can be, a, can be great. The proliferation of democracy, the liberalization of people, that's great. Um, overcoming evil in the world, that to me is great. Um, free, our freedom is great. Our Bill of Rights is great. I mean, we have some great, great stuff. And the freedom to worship, to me, is very high on the list. Knowing what I know about people around the world who have not that freedom, that's a great thing. So I think we proclaim the greatness of Christ as they did on Palm Sunday uh, because of his willingness uh, to do what the Father providentially asked him to do on our behalf. That, that to me is the greatest thing of all, of the greatest story ever told. You'll not top that one. That's the greatest. In fact, if you were here today and you go, I guess that's okay, I don't know, maybe there's some greater things, you don't get it. <laughs> You're not there yet. That is the greatest thing. Because it impacts you for all eternity. All these other greater things are temporal. Like, really temporary. Very temporary in light of eternity. I would say that Jesus is great because, two main reasons I thought about this. I proclaim the greatness of Christ because he's a liberator and a deliverer. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the sovereign God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release in darkness for the prisoner. Okay, he's come. I'm, I'm a personal example of somebody that he rescued. 
So to me, he's great for that reason. I was near death, almost died many times, almost took other people's lives. He rescued me from law of sin and death through grace and love and great patience. He's great to me for that reason. Never going to forget him for that. He is my ally. But he's also a problem solver. We have a lot of problems in the world. Always have, always will. Because we're fallen and because we're not perfect. Because we create situations that are less than ideal. Because we sin. Because we have wrong motivation, wrong agendas. Problems come up. And because there is evil in the world. Let's, let's call it like it is. There's evil. There's darkness. There's, there's an opposition. There's an oppressiveness. There's a lot of things going on. But Jesus is a problem solver. Uh, true greatness has the resolve to solve the worst of problems. If you look at great efforts, great initiatives, great accomplishments by mankind, you'll find that there was a problem and they sought to solve, if not meet, the need that the problem represented. There's been some really serious ones. For the benefit of mankind, scientific discoveries, all kinds of things, medicinal issues. And man seeks to solve problems. Jesus is a problem solver. Christ solved our greatest problem. And he's willing to be a part of the solution. That's what makes him so great. Now, let me give you an example of something some of you probably won't like. Uh, Before I do, I don't have an agenda. I'm just using the example. It's the best one I can think of to illustrate the most important of things that we need to factor into our Christian life. It just so happens this is the obvious one right now in our time and space, which to bring up, because it best exemplifies the potential for a need to put something into practice that, quite frankly, isn't being put into practice often enough in our Christian life. Why this particular principle has been sort of sloughed off to the side and not really activated in our lives is probably costing the church credibility with the world. Well, I know it is. Uh, This particular thing, when you say I'm a follower of Christ, this particular thing, if once you say that and you mean it and it's accurate, this particular thing needs to be seen in your life, needs to be evident in your life. And this is a, this is the, for many it's a fork in the road. So I'm going to try to hopefully not be clumsy with this particular controversial issue, uh, I don't really know the solution to this controversy. I I really don't. I'm not going to pretend to, but I am going to use it. I am going to use it. Here's the problem. Okay, we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Nobody would disagree that this is a problem. In fact, if you don't think this is a problem, we're going to stop and have a prayer meeting. (laughs) Here's the problem. The problem is projectiles are exploding in the abdominal cavity of nine-year-old children sitting in second-period grammar class. That's a problem. I don't know how anybody cannot see that that's a problem. Not only is it a problem, it's a recurring problem. 
Carl Bart, a renowned theologian, said that preachers should have a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other. I agree with that about 75% of the time. This is one of the times I do. I have a hard time navigating this. My granddaughter is two and a half. In three years, she'll be sitting in a classroom. The last thing that I would think is that a, a bullet should, is going to pierce her little body while she's sitting there trying to learn the difference between uh, the letter L and the letter, letter Q. That to me is just like astounding. So I call that a problem. I don't know what you call it, but it's a problem. I also know that the problem exists and the source of the problem is on multiple layers. There's a, a breakdown in the society. There's a, a presence of evil. There's a there's a need for better mental health care. I don't know. You could go on and probably come up with 20 reasons why this problem exists. You could get a whole bunch of people around the table and do all kinds of studies. You'd probably come up. Just hurry up with it because they keep dying. That's my point. So, <clears throat> so if he's the great problem solver, and he comes the last week of our life to solve the greatest problem, I'm asking myself, because nobody else seems to be providing an answer that anybody's willing to go along with, how do we solve this problem? I don't think it's a ridiculous question. I think it's, we all should be asking it. How do we solve this problem? And how long does it go on before we actually, I don't know, Try to come up with some solutions, lasting. Because this isn't greatness. This is, this is not an indication of greatness. This is an indication of the exact opposite of greatness. Said another way, this is an embarrassment. This is an embarrassment on our society. What is going on here? I'm like, Matthew 18, 1 through 5 he called a little child to him and placed the child among them, and he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes this lowly position of this child and this greatest in the, is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's for stumbling. That's for stumbling. That's not for eradicating the life of a little one. That's for stumbling. Man, ooh, this is serious. This is a highly complex problem that has to be dealt with. And somehow, because nobody seems to have figured it out, I'm saying Christ needs to get involved because he's the problem solver. So where, what, what, what do we do? What, how would he, so you almost need to learn how to think 
about how to solve these problems from a biblical perspective, not a worldly perspective. I can't emphasize that enough. From a, so I'm watching uh, my little YouTube videos last week, and I'm looking for greatness. I've got to find some greatness looking for greatness. I found it. I found greatness in two people. Well, more than two people. These are just two names. There were, there were others. Officer Michael Colazzo and Rex Engelbert. Officer Rex Engelbert. I watched these men uh, get out of their cars, put their training into action. I saw them willingly give up their rights, their right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They gave it up, suspended their right to it when they entered the building. They started clearing rooms, and when the sound of gunfire happened, they ran to it. Uh, we've had examples of anything but that in the recent past. This is why I found greatness, joyfully found greatness in the actions of these men. They gave up the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. They put themselves last, not first. They turned their face like flint toward the sound of gunshots. They stepped over and around corpses in the corridor. They were resolute in their self-denial and on behalf of others, they solved the problem immediately. I got to thinking about that. I got to thinking about that. Tough problems necessitate tough solutions. I found myself with the greatest respect for what I saw. Because what I saw is best exemplified other than in that school in the last week of Christ's life, his life. Jesus entered Jerusalem, they entered the building. Jesus cleared the money changers, they cleared the classrooms. Jesus' destination was an upper room and their destination was an upper room. Jesus faced the high priest, Pilate, and Herod, and the officers faced their own potential demise. It's what I'd been looking for. It was a real-life example of Christ in the flesh. Not, not faith or faith without works, faith with works, with preparation. It was almost as though providentially, providentially, these men had been prepared for that day, not just in their actions, the technique, and how they're going to do what they're going to do. They had been given and afforded the opportunity to be prepared in their own heart to do it. There was no, there was no waiting. There was no indecisiveness. If anything, they, they expeditiously wanted to get into that building as fast as possible. And this is the principle. (laughs) 
Luke 9, 23, pick up your cross daily. Deny yourself and follow Christ. I would say that that principle right there separates each of us from the providential place that Christ wants us to be. Okay? He doesn't want us in the parking lot in the middle of an active shooter situation. He doesn't want us weighing the cost of living a life of following him when he calls us to do something sacrificial on the behalf of someone else. He doesn't want us afraid of man and what man will think when we feel like we're called to share the gospel. We have to die to self and be boldly share the gospel in love. This is, to me, the, 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 the marker in the road that almost separates mature from immature. The, the man or woman who will no, it will no longer be about them, it will be about him. Or those of his who are in harm's way, or those of his who are lost, those of his who are confused. There's people in our life that he wants us to reach resolutely and turn our face like flint towards those people and help them, but the reservation or the self-awareness or the self-consciousness that keeps us from actually doing what he called us to do, to me, is a separation between maturity and immaturity. And a firm foundation in Christ must adopt an understanding of denying yourself, picking up your cross daily, and following Christ. I, I don't know another way to put it. We will attempt multiple times, I'm sure, ways to try to minimize, I don't know if you can actually stop something like this, certainly minimize um, a plight of children and adults for that matter, just being slaughtered in broad daylight on a regular basis, no matter where you are really, you can be in a grocery store, you can be anywhere. The, the neurosis, here you go, the neurosis that develops in a society over time among a generation of people who can't even go in public without thinking or looking over their shoulder is just unbelievable. So, all right, we all know that's a problem. Nobody's advocating that. But here's some things that I think are thought-provoking. I have a gun safe at home. I have a big safe, uh, and it's full of guns. Guns my father-in-law gave me, and guns for hunting. My son gave me one for Christmas. I've only bought one gun, but I have a bunch of them. And I was sitting for breakfast the other day just to see the reaction of my friend of mine, who's a gun lover. I have guns. I'm not necessarily a gun lover. I just have them. And I use them for hunting. But I know he's a gun lover. So I said this. I wanted to see his reaction. I don't know if he's here today or not. It doesn't matter. I'm going to talk to him about it anyway. I said, 
I said, we have these projectiles that are exploding inside the abdominal cavity of nine-year-olds in second period grammar. And somebody has to figure out how to solve this problem. To what extent would you go for that not to happen anymore if it could be proven that the way that we're doing it is not going to change anything? It's a thought-provoking question. And, and that's why I bring it up. It's an interesting topic. I'm not willing to do this. I'm not willing to give up my right. I'm not willing to wait. I'm not willing to whatever, however you want to do it. If you actually could prove, I, I don't know, if you could actually prove that there's a direct correlation between people getting killed and, and buying these guns the way you do, or however it works, hypothetically speaking, okay? I don't think it's a total solution to this whole thing. Hypothetically thinking, how many people say, no, I'm not going to give that up. It's my right. It's a thought-provoking question. That's interesting. Michael Colazzo and Rex Engelbert gave something up. And the time to call his wife stormed into that place. That's greatness. That's greatness. That's that typifies what makes us great. Right there. The church has to be able to give herself up on behalf of another. It, it, it's, 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 it's a foundational thing. This is a, this is a foundational thing. This isn't like a, a, a master's level Christianity. This is basic. Basic. We have to submit to one another. It's part of the package. Forget the guns. I don't know how that's going to be solved, and I don't have an answer. I don't pretend to have an answer, and I don't have an agenda. My only point is I'm bringing something up that I think is thought-provoking. Are there certain things in my life that I won't give up no matter what? That's the point. So don't write me a white paper on, I don't, save your time. Are there things in your life you're not going to give up no matter what? And what are you holding on to? It could be in a relationship. It certainly could be in a marriage. It could be so many things. Pick up your cross daily. Deny yourself and follow Christ. Why does Jesus talk to us about fasting? That's a basic thing too, my friend. Basic, 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 basic thing. Why? He wants us to understand that we don't get everything we want when we want it. We aren't do everything that we get. Our, here's one. Your life is not your own. It was bought with a price. You see, the Christianity and the Bible and the version you see out in the world are two, if not three, if not four different things. We're called to be persecuted and guaranteed persecution. Pick up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow Christ. Is that a Palm Sunday message? Actually, it is, yeah. It is the sole agenda and intent of Jesus Christ. 
on the last week of his life to turn his face like flint, providentially speaking, to die to his own self though he didn't deserve it. To give up all executive privilege of heaven and receive what he didn't deserve, not what he did deserve. And you and I are called to follow him. That's something. They didn't tell me that when they led me in that sinner's prayer. Nobody told me about that. Where was that? It just came out of nowhere. Like, oh, yeah, I meant to tell you. This dying to self thing. Oh, yeah. Why did you wait so long to tell me that? Where was that? It wasn't wasn't even in the orientation. You waited, you waited, you waited. I got all zealous for Christ. I came to church, started worshiping. Then somebody dropped that bomb on me and go, what? Yeah, it's in the Bible. It's everything. It's in there. I'm going to read these words to you. I am 155%, 200%, if there's such a thing, of making America great again. I can't think of a better thing for our government to do. I just have a definition of greatness that's different. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I have a responsibility providentially given to me, and that is to tell you in an accurate manner that you are called to deny yourself and follow Christ. That is my mandate to you. Despite the rivers of influence that say otherwise, that is what I am mandated to do by God. As well as 
live it out myself. That is Christianity. Don't mistake Christianity for some other version you hear outside this room. It sounds arrogant, but it's confident. Pick up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow Christ. Find out where there's gunfire and run. Liberate. Comfort. Love. Support. Encourage. Counsel. Do it in the name. Do it in the love of the name. Just do it. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Those that humble themselves will be exalted and those that exalt themselves will be humbled. What have have we got ourselves into? That's discipleship. That's biblical discipleship. Communicates would come forward. Let's prepare for Holy Communion. so many desires and goals and ambitions and dreams. Thank you for every one of them. We have an allegiance to you, to your word, to each other. We're in covenant with you and one another. But at our basic, basic level of understanding and training and execution and behavior, we have a mandate to deny ourselves at times and follow you, to pick up our own cross. It's just ominous. It's an ominous statement. What was said here today is intended to make us think. It's not intended to be an answer. You're the answer. And we need to think about it. So bless us in that endeavor. What is it we're holding on to in our lives, relationships that perhaps we need to let go of? What attitude? What reservation? What hesitancy? What arrogance do we have? Reveal that if you would, please. Solve our problem continual daily through your broken body and your shed blood on the cross. This we know for sure. And in this we rest. You are our strong tower and the righteous run into it and they are safe. Help us, Lord Jesus. Help our land. To whatever extent your church needs to repent, turn from her wicked ways. Then you will hear from heaven and heal 
our land. Help us. Help us, help us, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.